Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre based in Holy Trinity Brompton here in London. Jane Williams, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Graham Tomlin, in discussing God, life, theology, the Bible, in fact, just about everything. Well, hello and welcome to GodPod 75. Graham Tomlin here, as usual, introducing this um, new edition of GodPod, which is a little bit different from normal. As you know, if you are a listener to our podcast, normally we have a few of us, our regular team, uh, holed up in a little room in London, uh, talking about theology and life and everything else. Uh, But this time we have something a bit different, and it emerges out of a conference that uh, we at St. Melitus College ran uh, a little while ago called The Holy Spirit in the World Today, Capturing the Imagination of the Culture. The idea of the conference was to bring together quite a few uh, academics, uh, along with a um, group of people um, listening to that, came from, coming from the church, from the academy, from other places, to think about the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and how the Holy Spirit helps us as Christians engage in this work of recapturing the imagination of the culture. The idea is basically that Christian faith once held the imagination of our culture, uh, but it no longer does that, and how might that happen again? And as part of this uh, conference, we did two panel discussions. And so this God Pod and the next are going to be recordings of those panel discussions that took place as part of the conference. And so this one, God Pod 75, is a discussion which took place on the first day of the conference. And it involves uh, myself. Uh, it involves uh, Steve Holmes, who was uh, one of our uh, speakers from St. Andrews University. It also includes uh, Julie Canlis who uh, is the author of a very brilliant book on John Calvin called Calvin's Ladder. Uh, it also includes James Harding, um, who is one of our new tutors at St. Melitus College, started with us later on this year. And um, this came at the end of our first day where we had two keynote speakers. The first was uh, Professor Francesca Murphy, who is um, an academic based in the United States, a Roman Catholic theologian, who gave a fascinating introduction to the whole theme of the Holy Spirit and imagination. How does the Holy Spirit fund and inspire our imaginations? And uh, then later on, we had a talk which um, was uh, written by Professor Tom Greggs. Uh, Sadly, on the day, Tom was uh, unable to to come. Um, And so, in fact, I actually read out his uh, lecture with a few embellishments from myself. But um, Tom is... um, uh, a good friend of the college, and he is um, a professor of uh, theology in um, the University of Aberdeen. And so uh, he had spoken on the theme of transforming the culture of the community, the church, its mission, and the Holy Spirit, thinking about the church as a place which turns us out from our self-absorption into engagement within the wider world. And therefore, the church is a place that has to be not so much concerned about its own survival, its own life, but more concerned about the world to which it's called by God. So after these two uh, talks exploring our themes, we had a panel discussion where we got questions uh, fed in uh, from the audience via text or by uh, phone call and uh, or by tweet. And the panel was able to handle those questions, and that's what you're going to hear in a few moments. So here is the panel discussion from day one of the Holy Spirit in the World Today, and I hope you enjoy GodPod 75. Our uh, guests on our panel today, and we actually lost Francesca. We don't quite know where she's gone, (laughs) so we're hoping she's going to come a little bit later on. Um, But we have Steve, Steve Holmes, um, 
uh, from St. Andrews University. Uh, he's going to be speaking in one of our keynotes uh, tomorrow. Uh, some of you will have uh, seen him already speaking on um, uh, social media. We have Julie, Julie Canlis, who's also going to be speaking tomorrow, one of our keynote speakers. Looking forward very much to that. And so Julie's uh, here as well. Um, we also have James Harding, who, again, uh, was speaking in the popular culture seminar earlier on. James is the uh, chaplain of uh, Liverpool University and um, is soon to be a, a staff member with us here at St. Melitus. He's coming uh, later in the summer and uh, moving down to this part of the world. He's going to be based in Chelmsford and we're delighted that he's uh, joining our staff team. So uh, we've had quite a number of questions that have come in and um, uh, I'm going to be the, um, the compare, as it were, asking the questions and quizzing our esteemed panel. Um, and uh, my audit add in the occasional comment myself from time to time. Um, but um, to to begin with, so as we um, begin this discussion, one question that um, came through here was, uh, is there a danger that we reason from human spirituality to a doctrine of the Holy Spirit? What are the theological sources for doing pneumatology? Anybody want to have a go at that one? Is there a reason, what are the, what are the, the, the kind of boundaries, if you like, between human spirituality and the divine spirit. Is it sometimes a temptation that when we talk about the Holy Spirit, what we're really talking about is actually kind of human spirituality, um, the kind of spirit of the age, um, all of that kind of thing. Where, where are the boundaries, if there are some, between human spirituality, the human spirit, and the divine Holy Spirit? It's me. <laughs> You're holding the microphone. <laughs> um, it, it's a really important question. Um, and if we look at the theological tradition, we get different answers. It's, it's kind of one of the basic divisions of the Reformation. Uh, there's a, a, an old line that's, as with all these one-liners, is, is just true enough to be really, really dangerous um, to the effect that um, the Reformation divide was uh, between the, the, the Roman Catholic Church that believed that uh, grace perfected nature and the reformers who believed that grace overcame nature. And uh, you can do a lot wrong with that, but on this sort of question it captures something really quite important. And uh, I'm sorry Francesca's not here because it would be a good engagement because uh, I did think Francesca's paper this morning, uh, excellent paper, was uh, expressed very much a Roman Catholic view in that sense. Um, a, a, a fundamental continuity between our spiritual longings and the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit that uh, feels right from the perspective of Roman Catholic dogmatics, from my kind of more reformed view, feels much more uncomfortable. Uh, and I'd want to push this sort of uh, division much harder than, than, than Francesca did uh, and say... Um, that we need to be deeply suspicious of human spiritual impulses. They can be, they generally are misdirected. Uh, even when there's good in them, that good is, is tarnished and warped by uh, our own selfish and, and misplaced desires. And so the work of God's Spirit is, is a purifying work where, uh, particularly through the scriptures, but uh, through the immersion in the life of the church, through the sacramental life of the church, uh, our desires are tested, judged, uh, redirected uh, until the point where we learn to long 
in right ways, not in disordered ways. Julie, you, um, I mean, you've written on Calvin. Calvin has some interesting views on um, questions of sort of the inner light, the human will, and um, I mean, how, how would Calvin respond to those kind of questions? Well, for any of you who've read Calvin, he can be very creative in his descriptions of Roman Catholic theology. Uh, not very generous, and so as someone who read a lot of Calvin and grew up essentially evangelical, um, reformed, maybe bordering on fundamentalist, I've learned a lot from Roman Catholicism's positive reminders that we have been created in the image of God and that sin is a tarnish on what was created a very good human nature and one that is alive to God and created for communion with God. So I always like I always have to listen to my Roman Catholic brothers and sisters to remind remind me of that truth. Well, I also think that we're there as the thorn in their flesh to remind them <laughs> of perhaps a bit more of the Protestant realism isn't the right word. Suspicion is perhaps the better word, um, but a necessary one because the heart is deceitful above all things. Um, I think for me, the most important thing when we talk about spirituality is that quickly we lose the capital S, and we talk about spirituality as basically our emotions. And I don't think Christians can talk about spirituality without actually speaking of the Holy Spirit. And the whole realm of spirituality must be directed and guided by the Holy Spirit. And yes, we all have spiritual longings, and those are probably because, you know, if we were to use Francesca's language, there is this natural... Um, connection between humanity and God because we're made in his image, but that isn't the Holy Spirit coming in and taking over and reforming and reshaping who we are at our core. So I think there we have to actually begin not with spirituality, but with the person of the Spirit. We have to begin that way. That doesn't mean that our point of contact with the world is that sometimes we have to take music, and even music in its very disturbing forms, as a place to meet with people and then begin to point them to the Holy Spirit, but not projecting that onto the Holy Spirit. You know, it's a little bit, I think of Tom saying we need to begin with, how did he put it? Um, the Holy Spirit's desire for the church, not, uh, someone's probably typed it out and taken good notes, but he, he again redirected our view to, we need to begin with the Spirit. So that would be, I think that's the Reformed corrective, not saying the Spirit isn't out there, but we need to begin with the person of the Spirit and from that interpret the world and even our own emotions. It is one of the great sort of debates of theology, isn't it, that, that, that captures the sense that the God that we believe in is the God who's both creator and redeemer. And that it seems to be very important that we say both of those things. He's both creator and redeemer. He's not just creator, he's not just redeemer. And in a sense, it's maybe a simplification, but I guess... Roman Catholic theology tends to emphasize one side of that. Um, Protestant theology tends to, 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 to um, emphasize the other. That's a gross simplification. But, but it, it captures the tension right at the heart of Christian faith. And actually, not, not, not a tension, but, a, but the, the, the very identity of Christian faith. We believe in a God who is both, and we take both with utmost seriousness. And so maybe we need to, there's a sense in which we kind of need to listen to both the Roman Catholic reaffirmation of the goodness of creation the goodness of humanity is made in the image of God, um, but that isn't sort of uh, isn't to be trashed, 
but yet also the deepness of the sense of the fallenness of that and the need for redemption that we have in Christ. Otherwise, Christ becomes rather incidental to the whole enterprise. I was just going to say, um, one of the ways this plays out is uh, accounts of what went wrong um, in the fall. So between creation and redemption, we have a, an account of the fallenness of humanity, however um, we derive that. And uh, Thomas Aquinas, in a, in a classic kind of Roman Catholic position, um, wants to say that certain things are completely obliterated by the fall of humanity, whereas other things are left untouched. So our reason remains perfectly competent, um, but our um, our ability to um, um, hear God's voice is completely obliterated until through um, Christ's redemption and through participation in the sacramental system of the church, of course, for Thomas, uh, that is renewed. Calvin's view is that every part of our life is profoundly damaged, but none of it is totally obliterated. Now, neither one is stronger than the other. They're just different. And having said they're different, you then say, um, so for Thomas, there's there are bits of us that are still undamaged. And so there is a kind of continuity, even for the fallen human person. Um, whereas for Calvin, there's nothing that's left undamaged. Although equally, there's the, the, uh, Calvin will say there are remnants of all good things, whereas Thomas can't say that. Uh, and so the, these accounts of creation, fall, redemption really are profound. Uh, and you know, the point is that, that this determines how we read popular music, how we understand our engagement with the culture, with the spiritual longings that we find out there, um, how we respond pastorally to the person who um, turns up at the church saying, um, I, I, you know, the, 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 these desires, or, or I had this vision, or, or, or whatever it may be. This, this, the, these basic theological points actually drive pastoral practice at the most fundamental level, and which is why we need to think about them. Um, James? Just, just in a sense, taking a step back from um, different ways of engaging with the question, I just wonder, when, with questions like, um, to what extent is there a danger in starting with human understanding rather than some kind of objective um, theological understanding of the spirit or of anything, for me, it kind of it sets up this post-enlightenment false dichotomy between human understanding as subjective, with all those problems and challenges and as some kind of pure understanding a theological understanding of god that's not subjective that's somehow objective and and actually i don't think it's that simple i don't think there are two hegelian categories of subjective human understanding and a pure spiritual objective theology because you know i i find the work of gadamer helpful here that when i try to come to a pure theological pneumatology or, or whatever kind of theology, um, I come as James, as a 36-year-old white male living in England in 2013 with all my voteur prejudices, all my likes, all my dislikes. And so there is it in a sense that I can't not be myself and bring myself into my understanding of theology, pneumatology. The, the, um, you know... Um, um, Archimedes once said, if you give me a place high enough above the world and a lever that's long enough, I will move the world with my lever. Great, but there's no place like that. 
Can any of us really come to that pure theological understanding? We're called to try and do that. That's what these things are great about doing, the, you know, these talks. But can we really ever not be Graham, James, Jewel, Steve? Thank you. Good. Uh, we'll just move on to one or two questions that arise out of um, uh, Tom's talk. Um, and the uh, first one is, uh, within uh, Tom's presentation of the priesthood of the church, and in that, that lecture we just heard, um, there's a very strong sense of the priesthood of church, the priesthood of Christ. Uh, what place is there, if any, uh, for ordained leadership or priesthood? James, do you want to okay. get started on that um, I'd, I'd start with the New Testament text, and I would say that um, that the the priestly image of Christ it comes from the Greek concept of heros, and that's the Petrine context as well, heros as a priest, one who offers sacrifices, whereas the, the priestly function as a person with a dog collar on in the Church of England or whatever, coming from the New Testament concept of leadership, is derived not from heros, but from the Greek presbyteros, which means leader, one or elder, one who's called to lead or, um, uh, or, or exercise some kind of oversight oversight or or leadership among. So I would say that the role of the presbyteros is to help the heros, the people of God as a priestly people, become the priestly people God has called them to be. Steve. Yeah, um, I, I, that struck me about Tom's talk that um, and I'm, we're examining a, something together in two weeks' time and I'm going to have a go at him over lunch, um, that he had no, uh, it seems very odd to come to a theological college and have no account of the role of um, the set-apart leadership, uh, whatever they may be, whoever they may be, um, in your account of how the church lives its life. Uh, I think James's an analysis is right, although I'm not sure I'd get, get at it quite the same way. Uh, all of our traditions, you, if you, I'm a Baptist, you'll hear something about this, and my Baptists are right, and Anglicans are wrong tomorrow. Um, but but um, 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 uh, and uh, all of our traditions, when they f when we've split apart in the 16th century, were very convinced that the New Testament had one way and one way only of organising a church, and that it was our way. Um, so. Um, your writers were better than ours, and they stick in the mind the, the preface to the um, order for um, consecrating bishops in the Book of Common Prayer. It is evident to all men diligently reading Holy Scripture and other ancient orders that from the earliest times there have been in Christ's church three orders of ministry, bishops, priests, and deacons. And, you know, we had the same saying that um, there's no such thing as bishops. Um, we won't go there. And, and so on, yeah. But, uh, but anyway, we, so, so, so there's all this sort of stuff um, going on. And most of us, I think, have got over that. Um, I hope most of us have got over that. And we, you know, these days, my reading of the New Testament texts and the New Testament scholars is, you see in the New Testament a variety of ways of ordering church leadership. There's no one right way. Um, it has to do with cultural, social conditions. There's, there's lots going on to do with... Um, how your house churches are, are, are structured and so on. But whatever there is, there is a sense of gifting and there is a sense of leadership gifting. And here, you know, I'm looking at, uh, at the back end of Ephesians. And the role of the gifts, the leadership gifts, is 
to build up the body so that it may be perfect. So wh whatever orders of ministry you might have in your tradition, um, there is a peculiar place for those people who are called and set apart to those tasks to be involved in the building up of the community so that it can be the community that God calls it to be. Now, it seems to me once you've said that, um, Tom's analysis of abductive, um, uh, of kind of abductive personhood in the church, of all people in the church being for each other, uh, which I don't want to disagree with, um, but I want to kind of say we need to be more, we need to do some specifying. The task of the pastor or the teacher is to be for the other members of the church in some very particular ways that are rather different from the task of those who are not called to be pastors and teachers. And, you know, those of you who are, uh, students or, or, or former students of this college who are, are preparing or, or, or presently active in church leadership roles. And I think we actually need to drill down into that and say, this is your ministry. This is what God has called you to. This is what your church has ordained you to do. To be, to, to, to live and to be in such a way that you are building up the local community that you have been called to, that it might be presented perfect before God. I think Tom gave us a great account of what a community presented perfect before God might look like. But that notion of the role of um, the leadership of the church, those gifted in certain ways in the church, to making that happen is something that it's important to analyse. Because you know, as an elder of my own local church, it's something that I spend time thinking about. How do we do this? How do we do this well? How do we do this properly? Uh, this is practical. This matters. There does seem to me a, that's right, a, a particular relationship of the presbyteros or whatever word you want to use for it um, towards the whole community as opposed to the other individuals within it, which is a little bit different from um, from Tom's analysis. But I, I think there's a. I do want to. I think I do want to argue for the potential of using priestly language for, for ministry, um, largely because I think. It seems to be clear that in the New Testament, the two forms of priesthood that it talks about, um, the priesthood of Christ and the priesthood of the church. But there is one, one place, um, which I've only recently discovered, actually. I didn't, I'd sort of read Romans many, many times, but never quite sort of recognized this and noticed this little verse, which comes towards the end of, um, of chapter 15, uh, where Paul talks about um, uh, the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul obviously sees his ministry to the Gentiles, in a sense his evangelistic ministry to the Gentiles, drawing them to Christ and offering them to God as a priestly activity. So in a sense, I think that's really interesting, because it says actually that evangelism is a priestly activity. It's actually um, drawing people to Christ so they become offerings to the Father, in similar sense that um, Tom was talking about earlier on in his in his talk, um, and it perhaps gives us the beginnings of permission to think about aspects of Christian ministry that are priestly in in that way. And um, now, Christian priesthood can only ever derive from the priesthood of Christ, and sort of secondarily from the priesthood of the Church. And uh, I think one might develop a, a kind of account of, of a Christian priesthood or ministry as priesthood in the sense that that if Christ's 
ministry is in some ways mediating God's presence to us and by that mediation enabling the world to become what it was always intended to be. To be. Um, and, uh, and in a sense, that's what the church is caught up in. Um, but in the sense that I think both James and Steve have, 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 have said that, that particular ministry, the ministry of presbyteroi, is actually in some ways to, to enable the church to be the church, to be what it's called to be, this, this priestly people. And in that sense of, of um, and in a sense of, of mediating God's pr- uh, word and sacrament, you know, to mediating the presence of God in word and sacrament to the community as a whole. And to that extent, one might use priestly language of ministry. But, Julie. Just to say that I often notice that in churches that stress very strongly the priesthood of all believers, there often is not much priestly language at all for the minister and vice versa. And in churches where you speak strongly of the priest or the minister, there's often a lack of a sense of the priesthood of the laity. And so I actually took Tom's point to more mean that we need to make sure that the priesthood of the, you know, of all the believers language doesn't knock out the priesthood of the church as well as the priest over the church. So Yeah, I think that is right. Good. Um, to go on to another one, again, rising out of um, Tom's talk, um, does the diversity of the body of Christ need to be seen in the universal church or in every local expression of the church? So it gets linked to um, one of the things that Tom was saying that I think was on one of the questions on the screens earlier on about how um, this question of must there be differences of gender, age, class, social standing, etc., for a community to be the church? To what extent does every local church have to express that diversity for it to be actually properly called a church. If you fully took Tom's point, you know, a kind of um, monocultural church is not really a proper church. Um, and I guess the questioner is asking, uh, is, that, is that right? Or could we sort of translate that diversity to the universal church as opposed to the local church? I'm always, I'm always suspicious when diversity language comes up in the in the context of church just because I'm so sick of the language of diversity because I feel like I've been stuck in this language for 20 years and and I feel like yes the church is a diverse place and it's diverse because of the Holy Spirit but our small group discussion uh, I shared my experience currently is that in a tiny rural village church where there is incredible diversity uh, because we are the only church for miles and then uh, a woman shared well if she just went to her local church it's completely homogenous because uh, everyone lives in the same, you know, socioeconomic area. So she's saying to be in her parish church is actually not diverse at all because it's quite a few people who are living, who've chosen this neighborhood and they live there because they have a certain income. So I think it's got to be bigger than simply, it, it almost reminds me a little bit of segregating schools in America where we forced people to become or non-segregated, you know, we forced, we shipped people to different areas just for this sake of diversity. And so I, I think for me, more, much more powerful than the concept of diversity is this concept of being ex curvatus, being turned towards other people. Because whether or not that person is even in my socioeconomic bracket and I like them, it still can be very hard for me to be turned outwards towards them. And um, I find that a challenge even with my husband, who I'm very similar to and who I like a lot. <laughs> That's good to know. So, um, so the language of diversity sometimes for me clouds the issue of actually being transformed and truly stopping to be introspective as a Christian and living for the others can be in my own home, and that can be very difficult. It can be in my small rural church. It, 
so I don't know. I'm just, I guess I'm stepping away from diversity altogether and choosing as a higher calling, which is to me more encompassing Tom's language of being ex cavatus or turned outwards towards others. I think that's right. Um, I think on the one hand, um, when we define diversity according to the same classifications as a government census forms defines diversity, we have already surrendered something really quite significant. Uh, we've said that, or we've made the implicit claim that our culture has properly understood what it is to be human. I suspect our culture hasn't properly understood what it is to be human yet. Which is not to say that homogeneity is a good thing. Um, I think one could make a distinction between the deliberate exclusion of certain people in the pursuit of homogeneity and the happenstance arrival at uh, a church that is in a, a local church in a particular bit of London is likely to have, um, or in certain bits of London is likely to have very similar people attending it just because the local area is moderately homogenous in those terms. Now, that, yeah, that distinction seems to be quite an important one. If I set out saying um, I am going to start a church which is going to attract 20-something uh, urban professionals and I'm going to actively discourage anyone who doesn't fit that group from coming through my doors, it seems to me that I'm doing something that is not, that is fairly fundamentally not of the kingdom. Um, if I set out and say this church is is where it is, and it happens that I know that within um, three-quarters of a mile of this church in this city, almost everybody who lives there is a student. There are quarters like that in many cities. Um, that means that everybody who comes to this church is likely to be a student. That's okay, because I'm not trying to exclude anybody. I'm just tripping over the people I have. And as Julie says, there are all sorts of diversity. There are diversities of gifting and calling. Uh, amongst people who look very similar. So I think there's an intentionality. It is wrong to exclude anybody on any criteria. Uh, there's probably an intentionality that says a local church ought to look like its local community or ought to be trying to. But of course, we don't. I mean, I remember when I was pastor in London, we used to beat ourselves up. We lived in a, we, we were on a kind of crossroads with a tube station on it in South London and there were eight distinct kind of ethnic communities that you could identify around that crossroads uh, and we were reaching four of them uh, and we beat ourselves up every time we met as a leadership. We said we're only meeting four of these eight ethnic communities. About two years after I moved on, I suddenly realised there wasn't anything in that community, not the supermarket, that was reaching as many as four of those ethnic communities, that, that, that you know, that, that there were separate shops for the different communities. And so we were doing a better job, um, although it wasn't a perfect job by any means, we were doing a better job than any other organisation in that community. And uh, that, um, uh, and so while we were right to hold out uh, an eschatological hope and to, uh, and to have a holy dissatisfaction, that we were not yet the church that we should be in that community. Equally, um, we should have been able to celebrate by the gift of God and the grace of God the extent to which we had become 
one of the most visible signs of common humanity under God that there was in, in, in that whole little corner of London. Because in a way, what you're doing in that is actually you're, in a sense, passing one of other Tom's tests, which is that the church should be a, if you like, a, a more varied community than the world around. Now, as you measure that, you could say, okay, you've got eight social groups, you've only got four, so you're smaller. But in another sense, you know, you're saying that, but you know, that very often community as we understand it outside is not real community at all, because actually those eight ethnic groups just don't mix. Yeah. Um, there isn't a space where they actually do encounter one another, uh, learn to turn out towards one another, therefore the church becomes a uniquely varied community in that sense, um, which I think is a, is, is, part of what Tom, I think, is talking about in being a witness to the world of a different kind of polity. In other words, not a community where eight different ethnic groups live alongside one another in total exclusion and in a sense of hierarchy, but actually a community where some of those groups can come together and begin to create relationship and be something of a sign, a pointer to the kingdom of God in the future. Um, James. Yeah, just just to think about the slight difference between talking about diversity in terms of... um, ethnographic, demographic, anthropological diversity, and thinking of diversity in terms of charismatic diversity, of the diversity of gifts within a particular um, expression of local church. And um, I just want to I just want to try and speak practically about my own experience of the past six years of church planting by starting with a 19th century German theologian called Müller, who said, Christ never bequests his gifts to an individual, but always to the church. Uh, so it's not like a, that a church is made up because this individual has this gift of evangelism, prophecy, healing, etc. But actually that there's a church that experiences as a church the gifts needed for the mission, ministry and life of the church. And actually that's the ideal church of the New Testament, the, the unrealized church, eschatological church. Um, it's not my experience of church planting. <laughs> and and here's, here's why I want to make it practical, because if we feel within a community that may be culturally and ethnographically similar or different, that there's no diversity of charismatic gifts needed for the community of the church, pr- pray that that will happen. See it, have faith to see it in that person. C- call them and encourage and mentor and equip them to take up that gifting Thank you. Um, another question here. How can we be a growing but martyriological church? Um, maybe the, uh, another way to answer this, another form of the same question, is um, is it wrong to think about wanting to grow the church if uh, the church is primarily called to martyrdom, witness, if it's called to kind of live outside extensively for the sake of the world, it shouldn't be concerned about its own survival, um, is it therefore wrong to try to grow a, 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 a church or even to grow a large church? Uh, can you be both growing and martyrological at the same time? You can certainly be growing and martyrological at the same time, and there's a strong argument that if you are truly a martyr church, you will be growing. The, I mean, the old slogan from the first century that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church is... Uh, a reflection on church history um, and one that we can see in our own times. I've had the privilege of meeting underground church leaders in China and listening to some of their stories and 
and and you um you you realize that uh, bizarrely the church of jesus christ flourishes under persecution uh not that it's easy not that we should ever romanticize that but it it, it just does seem to be a lesson of history that um often the result of persecution is massive church growth uh whether you can be aiming to grow at the same time as being martyrological as you put it is a more interesting question my suspicion is you can but you need to order those two things rightly our first calling is to faithfulness which means to witness which means at the end of the line to martyrdom uh if we put anything else above that we failed and that includes growth but if accepting our first calling is to faithfulness we then beneath that start ordering secondary ends and say that because our calling is to faithfulness to faithfulness for the kingdom um we have a need to um a kind of holy dissatisfaction i've used the phrase before but uh, it it is something we're talking about in my own local church at the moment we're we're jealous for um one or two people to come in because we can see things that we believe that we ought to be doing in the community of service and witness that would cost us a lot and we just need you know kind of if we just had someone who had those skills then we could start this thing happening um and we could be pouring ourselves out in love and service to the community in a way that just at the moment we don't feel we can and uh, and so i i don't think there's there's anything wrong with if you absolutely clear and it's written into kind of every fiber of the being of the church that faithfulness faithful witness to the lord jesus is the first priority of this church under that to say um and we want to see a bigger faithful witness to the lord jesus i think you could probably do but the heart is deceitful above all things and keeping those priorities right and not deceiving yourself as a local church leader is is very very tricky sometimes julie i'm just going to give a quick lesson that i learned this year from pig farming it <laughs> it was our first time of raising pigs at the manse and what i learned is that we had bought this rear breed kind of pig that grows very slowly and uh the average bacon that you buy in the shops is from a 3 month old porker whereas our pigs you couldn't even imagine slaughtering them till minimum 8 months and um but the thing about the old growth varieties that are all dying out uh because nobody wants pigs that take that long to feed and grow um is that the flavor is unparalleled it's completely a different fake flavor it's no longer the other white meat it's actually something that's its own it's its own food and it really tastes like pork so as i was thinking about this and i was actually taking all these theological insights from going out there and feeding my pigs every morning i started thinking about at the same time that probably in the early 90s that people started to become aware that there is this church growth movement and we're not sure it's very good out of italy at the same time there came this something called the slow food movement and it was a bunch of chefs who got together and said 
the way that we're doing you know fast food from America is ruining our taste buds it's ruining the way we think of food and community and so they they launched this slow food movement that all these chefs started joining up for and and it became fashionable suddenly to have slow cooked meals and things casseroles were coming back you know in the early 2000s in comfort food and these parallels are not just not random i think a lot of people are becoming fed up with with fast growth fast food and so matt and i uh, up in aberdeenshire we call our church the slow church movement <laughs> because our church definitely defines the slow church movement um but what we're finding is that the growth a couple of people who come to the lord each year uh, from our very small community it it's real growth and it's long growth and it's people who weren't drawn in quickly they they came you know tiptoeing in and they weren't grabbed in you know they were gently brought in and it was going to church maybe for two or three years trying it out that they slowly woke up one day and decided i guess i am a christian I, i'm not sure when it happened but yes i can say all these things now so i just want to say that growth happens but it's how we define growth and i think getting back to your talk on technology and i'm a little bit less excited about technology than steve is but i think technology <laughs> technology has changed our expectations of growth you know and we can't even now we can have kiwi all through the year we can have strawberries all through the year we don't know how to wait for anything so that's that's just my little rant about raising pigs and the slow church movement <laughs> so there you are you never thought you'd learn about bacon by coming to this conference did you um I mean, again, thinking about the ordering of this question, I mean, I, I wonder whether, I mean, thinking of that Greek word marturion, um, within the New Testament, it's, it's, it's primarily witness, and it then becomes the word martyr, in the sense that witness, witnessing, bearing true witness to Jesus Christ may end up with you being a martyr. It may not do, depending on the, the particular social context in which you happen to be in. And in a sense, whether you end up a martyr in some ways, it's kind of neither here nor there. The key question is, is bearing effective witness to Christ, to the God of Jesus Christ, and to the kingdom of God um, that is coming. And, and I, I think there is a key link between that and a, a growing church, because it seems to me that, that the, the extent to which a, a church can effectively bear witness to that other polity, to that other way of life, to that kingdom of God, um, and this may be you know, feeding back into, into um, uh, Francesca's point earlier on, uh, does somehow seem to sort of trigger something in people. There is something about the kingdom of God that we, we yearn for. Uh, even in our, you know, in our very best moments as human beings, we long for community, we long for, for fellowship, we long for love, we long for, long for kindness, we love for gentleness and generosity and the things of the kingdom. And when you see those, as opposed to a society which is often lacking in generosity and kindness and so on, it, it triggers something. And again, I'm, I'm reminded by, by Augustine's chapter on memory in, in the Confessions, you know, where he talks about this human memory we have of life as it was once when we were in connection with God before the fall. And we can't somehow get rid of that memory. We're constantly longing to find something, find this very thing, and we try to see it in creation, and it never quite satisfies, which is, of course, the great Augustinian prayer, you made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. We're longing to find this thing of which we have a dim memory. And a church that gives people a taste of that a taste of the kingdom of God, bears witness to that kingdom of God, actually will draw people. And um, But the, back to this one, the primary question has to be not how can I grow my church, but how can I bear effective witness to Jesus Christ 
and the kingdom of God here in this place. Yeah, I'm, I was thinking about that as well, about how we understand the Greek word maturion and how, how within a particular cultural context that would have got you killed, but in another cultural context, you know, um, it wouldn't, but you're still bearing witness. Sometimes you end up being killed, sometimes you might not do. Um, the important thing is being the witness. My other thoughts were that actually within within our um, performance-driven society, it's easy to understand growth as only a numerical increase. But actually, uh, growth is also an ontological change. And, um, you know, let's think of growth not just as increasing numbers in church and, and affiliation to Christianity, uh, which is which is important, but also individual growth of becoming, am I becoming more Christ-like? Am I spending more time in prayer? Is my character being changed and transformed into the likeness of God? Am I being more joyful? Am I, you know, these kind of things. This is growth as well as numerical increase. Yeah, thank you. Um, this is one I think probably directed at you, Steve. Um, in the context of a world of social media, <laughs> can a virtual church be a sacrament? Can a virtual church be a sacrament? Well, I mean, my, okay, my simple answer to that is no, because there are two sacraments, baptism and Eucharist. Um, okay, fair <laughs> um, <enough. laughs> Can a virtual church celebrate the sacraments? Let's, let's re, um, let's slightly rephrase the question. Um, I confess to being slightly skeptical, but I'm not prepared to absolutely rule it out on a couple of grounds, I think. One would be some sort of account of need. Um, so, uh, and and let's, let's go for the standard practice that all of us are aware of, of taking communion um, to the housebound in in the parish or in the church community and depending on your tradition um, you might well find that you you might go and and celebrate a short small communion service with someone in his or her own home or in another tradition you might as a as a lay minister be given the consecrated elements to take um, and to share with these people so there is kind of an extendability of the communal Eucharist that happened on the Sunday. Now, why do you do that? You do that not because that's the best way to celebrate the Eucharist. It's not the best way to celebrate the Eucharist is, is one people gathered, um, in one place under one minister celebrating one Eucharist. Um, you do that because when you cannot achieve perfection, uh, you find ways, um, of lovingly mediating the ministry of the church to the people of the church that are theologically adequate. And so we have this ability to kind of extend our Sunday Eucharist one way or another um, to include those who can't be present in it. Now imagine the person who is um, the one Christian believer on uh, the International Space Station or in an art Antarctic scientific camp. Um, I, imagine the person who is a Christian believer in uh, absolute um, 
confinement because of medical reasons. I, in fact, know someone who's been through this for um, a 72-hour period recently, uh, uh, being given a form of chemotherapy that completely knocked out his immune system. So uh, um was kind of shot in a room and told that door is not opening um, for the next four days. Or, um, and uh, um, Imagine you give to that person uh, bread and wine, consecrated or, or not consecrated, depending on your tradition, how you do it. Imagine you then invite them to participate through um, some sort of electronic means in the parish Eucharist and to take bread and wine with the rest of you. Is that wrong? Um, I kind of feel probably the answer is no. But, you know, we're kind of on the edge of special cases here. Um, there are, I, I have friends who would be much more positive about this. Um, Anyone else thoughts on virtual church? Um, well, if you're not computer literate, um, then the answer is, 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 um, is virtual church a sacrament? Well, insofar as sacrament is mostly on a mystery, then yes, because it's all a mystery to me. Sorry about that. But let, let me just uh, tell you a little When I was a deacon, um, my deacon's year, I was placed for a year in a very high Anglo-Catholic church, which was a completely alien experience for me. And I remember um, on um, during the ash, ashing on Ash Wednesday, um, turning to the bishop and uh, ashing him and saying, repent from sin and be faithful to the gospel. And that was a great experience. I remember afterwards saying to Father John, um, about something about that sacrament. It's, it's not a sacrament, it's a sacramental. And he drew, he drew a, um, a really nuanced distinction between a sacrament, whether that's the two dominical sacraments that Steve spoke about, the seven Catholic sacraments, and a sacramental as something that acts as a signpost that points us towards a grace conceived by God. And maybe that's, that's a better way to help think of it, because when we talk about sacramentals, not as a verb, but as, but as a plural, of sacrament of signs then all of a sudden there's a lot more things become signs you know let's just look at scripture john the baptist all the time people were coming to john the baptist and saying are you the one are you the messiah and he kept saying no i point to the one that's sacramental or melchizedek that tom spoke about in, in his talk as a prefiguration of christ in the uh, priestly ministry is a sacramental because he points to Christ or you know we can keep going like that so in that sense it could be sacramental as it is any kind of signpost that points us towards receiving Christ's grace yeah I think I, mean, I, I do use social media a fair bit some of you might follow me on Twitter if you don't you ought to um, but uh, I think I am for endless updates about Bristol City losing <laughs> yeah I'm actually on a Lenten fast on tweeting about football at the moment, as uh, those of you who tweet me will realize. I, I tweet about two things, football and God. Um, I think they have a relationship to one another. Um, ask Lincoln Harvey, he knows all about that. Um, but I think I am, I am a little bit dubious, I think, if I'm honest, about the idea of a virtual church within itself, a kind of internet church, partly because see, it's back to this idea of, of, of you know, that, that we have to affirm both the God of creation and, and redemption. And if we are affirming, you know, one part of that, which is the God of, of, of creation, part of our createdness is our embodiedness. We are, we have these things called bodies, and that's not an unfortunate thing. It's not a something we can somehow lay to one side. It's actually part of who we are. We are embodied people. Uh, when God chooses to reveal himself to us, he does it in a body. 
in the body of Christ, not through a, a book or a, or, a, or a picture or a, um, anything like that or a tweet. Uh, he does it um, through, a, uh, through, a, through a body, through a, a person. And therefore that kind of embodied connectedness that the church uh, is, a number of bodies coming together, called together by the Holy Spirit, as we were thinking about earlier on, seems to be quite crucial to what a, a church is. And while um, social media might help augment that, enrich it in all kinds of ways, and as Steve was saying, in certain extreme circumstances, it can actually in, in, enable a connection with the community. And I'm not sure it can ever replace the community in quite that same, same way. And so, um, so it seems to me you know, the embodiedness that we find in both creation and, and incarnation uh, actually has an ecclesiological significance um, that actually we do actually meet together uh, as, as real bodies in a real place, in a real location. And again, the locatedness of, of church within a particular community seems quite important, which is your point, Julie, about pigs and villages and everything else. Well, I just want to say, the minute you start thinking you can do church on the Internet, my question is, is church just for your mind? You know, is it just where you're going to get more information? Because you can get that from a book, you can get that from downloading a sermon. But there's something actually quite different that happens. Or we have to believe and renew our theology of what goes on on a Sunday morning. Most of it we can't see. Most of it we can't feel for certain. But there's something happening uh, in the, I would say, father-son-spirit realm of what they're doing to us, with us, in us. I mean, I always think it amazing that Jesus didn't give us a book. He didn't give us uh, 10 points. He gave us a meal. He gave us the poor. He gave us other people. He said, this is where you're going to find me. And so that's why, for me, the minute you start talking about church over the Internet, I feel like you've got a pretty Gnostic understanding of what it means to be a Christian. I would like to, I mean, I agree with everything that's just been said. Um, my, my only kind of contrary thought to all that is that when, when I was um, uh, working as a missionary in Thailand and going to Bangkok Christ Church at 4 p.m., when um, we would say, the peace of the Lord be all, always with you, I would... I would be thinking of my mum at 10 a.m. in Yorkshire saying, and also with you. So even though we weren't bodily in the same place, you know, and then there's that Catholic tradition of, uh, and with all the saints and all the prophets and, and with all those that have gone before, there's a great crowd of witness sharing this communion with us as well. Very good. So the community of Twitter might be the communion of saints <laughs> if you know how to use it <laughs> on that note i think we should um uh, draw this little section to a close can we yeah, just express our thanks to our panel this, this evening that was god pod a podcast from the st paul's theological center if you want to send us a question just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk we can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye.